Hello. Greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us and for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. It is written in the book of Habakkuk the prophet, the second chapter. I will take my stand at my watch post, and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And Yahweh answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from Yahweh of hosts that people labor for merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in Yahweh's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, so as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk is a very mysterious prophet in that we know absolutely nothing about him beyond what is written here in the book. We don't even know the derivation of his name. It could be an Akkadian term for a fragrant plant, or Hebrew word about embracing. Uh, it seems from the first chapter in verse 6, when uh, God talks about the Chaldeans being raised, that uh, if you take that service mean that's the Babylonian Chaldeans, this means that uh, Habakkuk is most likely prophesying at some point after the destruction of Israel. 
as the Chaldeans have arisen to be a power of note, so somewhere in the days of Josiah, or perhaps afterward, at the end of the 7th or the beginning of the 6th century B.C., there's some apocryphal stories about Habakkuk that would put him uh, toward the end of that period, the beginning of the 6th century B.C., as a contemporary of Daniel, but we have no reason to believe that those stories uh, have anything to do with fact or reality. And so what we know is based upon this burden or oracle that Habakkuk sees in Habakkuk 1 and verse 1. He's a prophet. He is conversant with the, the Psalms. He is warning Judah about the imminent danger of the Chaldean invasion, their need to practice righteousness, and the consequences for the Babylonians. Previously in chapter 1, to understand what's going on in chapter 2, uh, we've got a series of complaints and responses. So in the first, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, Habakkuk sets forth his complaint. There is all kinds of injustice and sin in the land of Judah, and God is not responding to this. Yahweh, God, then responds in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. He's going to do a terrifying work that would not be believed if told that he's raising up the Chaldeans to come and to judge Judah. And it will lead to his devastation and humiliation. Habakkuk then establishes his second complaint. Yahweh is holy and too pure to look at evil. So how can he countenance a more wicked nation, the Chaldeans, to judge a more righteous nation, which is Judah, verses 12-17. Not that Judah is truly righteous, but is certainly more righteous than the Chaldeans. And how can God allow his glory to go to another who is arrogant and who destroys nations over and over and over again. And so Habakkuk's second complaint ends with this declaration that he's going to sit on this watch post, chapter 2 and verse 1. He's going to wait for Yahweh's answer, and he will consider how he will answer about his complaint. And so in chapter 2, we get that second response from Yahweh. We get the message from Yahweh from verses 2 through 20. We have a continual stream that does not seem to be broken up by, by anything that would indicate a change of speaker. And the answer itself is in the first five, in, the, in verses 2 through 5. And it may seem strange and puzzling... Uh, in light of verses 6 through 20, but I think we can make sense of that. And, the, and there is this promise. The promise begins with uh, God telling Habakkuk to write down the vision to make it plain. That it's going to wait for the time it will be accomplished. It might seem slow, but it's not delayed. It's coming at the time God intends for it to come in verses 2 and 3. And what's this vision? Well, it's a contrast between two different people. We have the one who has his soul puffed up and it's not right within him, but the righteous live by faith. The one of the puffed up soul is perhaps a king of Babylon representing him and his people. You could also refer to the king of Judah and his and those who are committing the injustices as well. Uh, those who are righteous are the ones who live and thus will be delivered by their faith. God's going to see them through the trial. The next part of it is this, this comment about wine. A traitor, an arrogant man who never rests, as greed as white as Sheol, is not satisfied like death, and it consumes all nations. should not think that Yahweh is actually concerned about wine here. Uh, in Jeremiah 25.15, Jeremiah talks about the cup uh, of Yahweh's wrath, and there's the wine in it. It's unmixed wine. And uh, also in verse uh, 16 in Habakkuk, chapter 2 here, uh, that the cup in Yahweh's right hand, that's that's 
that's full of wine. And so the wine here could be seen as the wrath of God's anger. And that it will consume people. And it not only consumes the people that it's being directed at, it consumes those who are wielding it. And uh, thus it might be that Babylon might be pouring out the cup of God's wrath on Judah. But uh, it will be consumed by that cup as well. And so the second part of the response, the fuller part of the response, is this series of woes in verse 6 uh, through verse uh, 17 in a, in a kind of a conclusion about idols. So beginning in verse 6, that uh, there's this taunt that's going to be taken up with uh, scoffing and riddles. And the first woe is the one who takes what is not his and racks up debt, because the debtor is going to call on the debt. And the whole idea there is that the one who spoiled, you know, despoiled all these nations and took all this booty will become booty and plunder for another because of all the blood that's been shed in verses 7 and 8. The next woe is the one who obtains gain through evil and tries to build up high for safety, uh, build up in the heights to avoid the people. But uh, the house itself is going to cry out. It's built on shame. And uh, it will not end well. The third woe, in verses 12 to 14, this is the one who builds cities on blood and iniquity. That uh, from Yahweh people labor for the fire and wear themselves for nothing. That all this work gets put into building cities and they're just going to be destroyed by uh, an invader. Uh, on the other hand, the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as waters cover the sea, so that uh, God's glory will be declared throughout the nations. And the fourth woe is to the one who makes his neighbor drink to drunkenness to see their nakedness exposed. Uh, this would be a shameful thing, and uh, the idea is if you force somebody else to do that, you are going to be forced to do that yourself. And the cup of Yahweh that's in your hand to give to others is going to be brought back to you. And this is the humiliation of people as their towns are plundered and violence and rape is done to them. That humiliation is going to come to Babylon as well, and they're going to suffer the violence that they have imposed upon others. And if we look at these woes, there's a dual layer here. Because as, as a lot of times these individual first verses, verse uh, 6, 7, verse 8, 9, 10, especially verse 9, uh, verse 12... Verse 15 will be taken out and used as individual aphorisms, talking about the woes coming to those individuals who do these things. Kind of stripped out of its context here of talking about the nation. Be easy to kind of dismiss that as proof texting or as not respecting the context, but actually there is that kind of dual valence going on there because the woes are coming to somebody who would do this as an individual, but really the idea is talking about it as a person with the, the nations. Um, so, these first things are what the nobles have been doing to their fellow man that has caused Habakkuk to cry out that there's injustice. They, some of them have racked up big debts, some of them have built upon blood and shame and violence. Some of them have uh, made his, their neighbors drink to get them drunk and expose their nakedness in, in terms of humiliating their neighbors. And so you've got this dual layer because what's going on is because these people of Jew have done these things, the Babylonians are going to come do it to them. Because the Babylonians have done these things to the Judeans, it's going to happen to the Babylonians as well. And so we see that 
uh, that there's uh, something going on beneath the surface, and we'll explore that more in a little bit. But before we do that, the end of the chapter is a denunciation of idolatry in the, the, the most scoffing terms. What is an idol anyway? I mean, somebody's making it and then crying out for it to exist and to teach. And so the whole point there is that uh, it's it's folly. Uh, there's no value in it. There's no breath in it. It can't teach. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. And the earth needs to keep sound for him because he exists and he is going to do things. So Habakkuk's complaint is answered. The wicked nation is going to exhaust itself. And it's going to have done to it what it did to others. And in the end, only the righteous will be preserved, and Yahweh will stand alone to get the glory. So we look, there's a lot in this chapter, but of course the, the pivot of this chapter is Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. Uh, this has rightly been seen as very pivotal. His soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The idea that the righteous shall live by his faith is what Paul will then end up using to anchor his entire explanation of justification by faith. In Romans 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteous of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Likewise, in Galatians, the third chapter, and in verse 11, Paul says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So, this is very important in the history of Christianity as the foundation upon which all things are going to be built in terms of justification by faith, and the prominence of faith in in the faith, Uh, but it's also very conceived in context, because it's the summary answer of Yahweh to everything that Habakkuk's been concerned about. There's a contrast between the arrogant puffed up soul and the righteous. The soul of the arrogant, both in Judah and Babylon, are not upright. They will reap what they have sown. The righteous will live and continue to endure because they put their faith in Yahweh and that they will trust that he will accomplish justice. And so what Habakkuk is doing is he's giving voice to something that has been true from the beginning and will always be true. That what Paul is saying in Romans and Galatians isn't really novel, it's not unique to the New Covenant, it's just simply neglected. I mean, if we think about for a second, the the by faithless of of the Hebrew letter in 11th chapter, uh, by faith, Adam by faith, Abel by faith, Noah by faith, Abraham. Uh, these men of faith trusted in God, and God delivered them. And you have all of these great people of faith. Uh, these are the great champions of the patriarchal and uh, Israelite period. If you're going to be rescued by God, you have to put your trust in God. No one has ever deserved that. No one has ever observed any standard of law perfectly saved Jesus. And invariably, anybody who does not trust in God is going to put their trust somewhere else, and they're going to justify their sins. And that is why faith and trust are the fundamental issues. Who you trust will dictate what you think and feel and act. So if you trust your parents, you're going to think, feel, and act like them. If you trust in your education or your culture, you're going to trust, think, feel, and act like it. If you're going to trust in God, you're going to think, feel, and act like Him. So as God is rescuing the righteous from the judgment of the wicked Habakkuk's day, that's what he's always done for those who've trusted in Him. And He will continue to do for all those who truly trust in Him. Romans 5 and verse 9. And so what happens when you don't trust in him? 
Well, you get the situation that is described in Habakkuk 2, which we can phrase it in terms of Hosea 8 and verse 7, that they have sown the wind, and therefore they are reaping the whirlwind. Because God is answering Habakkuk's concerns. And remember, his concerns are twofold. First of all, how can God tolerate a more wicked nation destroying a more righteous nation? And he's gone through this list of woes. Okay? And when you look at this list of woes, you see that people have been sowing all kinds of terrible things. Uh, The old way that it was said is that they've spent all their time sowing wild oats, and at the last minute they're desperately praying for crop failure. But God's not going to give them crop failure. They have sown wild oats, and they're going to get wild oats, and they're going to get more wild oats than they ever would have imagined. The woes are ostensibly directed at Babylon, and they are. Babylon's going to have to deal with these woes. On the other hand, they're phrased in terms of woes about individuals and their problem, the problems of their corrupt and oppressive behavior. And so that's how God can do this, and it's, it's an exquisite irony that the people of Judah are reaping the whirlwind. They're, they're reaping their wild oats because of what they have sown in their iniquity. When the Babylonians come, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans here, are God's agent of judgment uh, upon the Ju- people of Judah for their iniquity, for their injustice, because they have put their trust in the ways of the world. They're going to get what the ways of the world get them, which is a more powerful nation coming and completely destroying them. And in so doing, the Babylonians themselves are putting their trust not in Yahweh, not even really in Marduk. They're putting their trust in the way the world works. And they're going to find themselves likewise overpowered by another foe. And in one way, you look that God's giving these people order, over to the natural order of things. And that, that what they lusted for is going to be their undoing, because people lusting for the same things with greater power are going to overpower them. And those people are going to be overpowered by people lusting for the same things. And it's a never-ending cycle, and it continues to this very day. So if you sow the wind, we see here, you reap the whirlwind. As they oppressed, they were oppressed. They suffered the consequences of their behavior. And we who are in Christ should not think we're immune. That if we act in worldly ways, and according to the lust of the world a good amount of the time, if we are sowing our wild oats six days a week and then come together on Sunday and pray for crop failure, we should not expect to be justified. We should have another thing coming. We've proven that we've loved the world, and God can give us over to the world. And if God gives us over to the world, we're just going to be overpowered because we are not strong enough to stand against the forces of the world. And we're just going to be overpowered and overwhelmed, just as everybody who ends up trusting in the ways of the world gets overwhelmed. And this gets us to the second complaint, a second concern Habakkuk has at the end of chapter 1, which is that if the Chaldeans destroy Judah, among others, they're going to give the glory to Marduk, and, and the glory will not come to Yahweh. And so that's why, not for nothing, Yahweh answers at the end of this denunciation, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, uh, with a condemnation of idolatry. That Judah needs to learn that idols are deaf and dumb and cannot save. Babel is going to learn that lesson as well. 
Judah trusts in the Queen of Heaven, the Queen of Heaven is not going to deliver them. If Babylon trusts in Marduk, Marduk's not going to deliver them because Marduk's not there. Yahweh, however, is in his holy temple, and all the earth should be quiet before him, that the days were coming when the whole world be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh. And so Yahweh's reminding Habakkuk about the time frame difference. What Habakkuk sees is a short term difficulty. Because it's just not that it, that God's denying that all of a sudden the, the Babylonians are going to, uh, they're not going to come into Judah and, and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and become server, worshippers of Yahweh. Okay, they're, they're not. They're going to vaunt and boast over uh, Yahweh and over his people. And his people might be thrown into an existential crisis. But, we think about the delicious irony of how this all has gone down. That, yes, that mighty Babylonian Empire, that mighty city of Babylon that had been inhabited for all those years, ended up being abandoned as a ruin. And the people who rediscovered it in the 19th century were people who had come and dug it up, and they were affirming the God of Israel as the one true God. It's through Jesus that the name of Yahweh has filled the earth, that Yahweh is in his holy temple, which is, yes, heaven, but also in the Christians and the church in 1 Corinthians 3, 14-16, 6, 9-20, and they proclaim His glory. That Yahweh is ex- means existent one, or the one who is, being, because He is all else can be. But idols are deaf and dumb. They're nothing. They have no existence. And that is why we need to praise and glorify Him. Because all the idols of the world are dumb, But Yahweh remains, and because Yahweh is all else can be, and it will happen, and God will get the glory. And so, Yahweh's told Habakkuk what he's going to do. It's now left for Habakkuk to wait patiently for Yahweh to accomplish it. We don't know how long it took, and we don't know when Habakkuk prophesied. It could have been within a few years, a few a few months, could have been a couple of years, could have been a few decades. We don't know. But we do have under other time frames that we can see. Between the time that God made a covenant with Abraham to the Exodus, and those, those Israelites left, was 550 years. From the beginning of the warnings about faithlessness to Yahweh between the judgment, where... You look at from the days of Saul and David to the days of first, perhaps, um, the days of the end of Israel to the north is about 300 years, 450 years, if you're going all the way to the end of Judah. From the prophetic promises of the Christ to his birth, some of the earliest prophecies in the days of Abraham, was 2,000 years. Uh, some of the last prophecies speak about it, maybe 500 years. But notice that when those things happened, they happened quickly. God had warned about the judgment with, uh, from 732. Uh, you see a major reduction by the Assyrians, the population of Israel. Uh, the entire kingdom is destroyed in 722, 721. It's only a couple of year siege that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple there. The first time, uh, they talked about the Christ for all these years. He lived for 30 five odd years, uh, and his ministry was approximately three years in the first century. Uh, Jerusalem, all the prophecies of its destruction, uh, the, it was a three-year period over which the events took place, and really the focus was on the last year. And so when God promised things would happen, they may have taken a while to happen, but they did happen quickly.
And so that's what you see there in that kind of conundrum there that uh, wait for it in Habakkuk 2, 2 and 3. It will not delay. It will come at its appointed time. And Peter says something very similar in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we Christians have been waiting for almost 2,000 years now for the Lord Jesus to return. And yet, we do well to wait patiently. Because, as we are told, when he returns, it will not take long. And it will all be accomplished. That's, in fact, he says the day of the Lord is like a thief. It's very quick. It's not when expected. And the story that we're told is the Lord will descend with the trump, we'll meet him in the air, he'll return to earth, he'll judge the living and the dead in the resurrection, we'll all have risen by then, we'll go to our eternal destination, and it's over. Very quickly, in Matthew 25, 1-13, through 13, that's the whole point, is that you don't know when it'll be, and it will come very quickly. So God works according to his purposes. When it happens, it will be fast. We need to trust him. Because when that day comes, a lot of people are going to be given over to what they wanted. What, how they had lived, the forces which allowed them to quote-unquote prosper, are going to overrun them. And those who overrun them will be overrun themselves. That is why the righteous live by their faith. They trust in God. They don't depend on the forces of the world and they obtain the inheritance. So let us learn to trust in God, to be the righteous, live by faith, and wait. The Lord is coming, it will not be long. He is in His holy temple, and the earth should keep silent before Him. We're again so thankful and glad that you've spent some time with us and explored more Habakkuk. If you've got some questions about some of the things that we've talked about in Habakkuk, uh, maybe you'd like to talk more about Jesus, maybe have some other questions. If there's any way that we can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Uh, or perhaps uh, you'd like to learn more about the venture to Christ. Come visit us to uh, learn more about us. Uh, maybe there's some way we can encourage you. Please let us know. We're online at our website, venturetochrist.org. We're on uh, social media. Uh, and uh, love to see you. Love to be of some service to you. We're again thankful uh, for you and for your interest. Please, we pray all is well with you. Have a great day.